You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 12th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today... Let me... Let me take this opportunity to thank the people of New Hampshire for a great victory tonight. Bernie Sanders wins with Democrats in New Hampshire, but can his policies win across the rest of the US? My guests, Carol Walker and Vincent McAvinney, will discuss that and the day's other news, including the leadership race for the UK's Labour Party and an unusual tactic in London's mayoral race. Would you let a campaign candidate come and stay on your sofa? All that plus design. We'll look at the limits of what can be used as a trademark. A recent report by the research firm CompuMark revealed that globally there have never been so many trademark applications or infringements. I'm Paul Osborne. Monocle's House View starts now. Well, welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Carol Walker, political analyst and former BBC political correspondent, and by Vincent McAvinney, who's the UK correspondent for Euronews. Now, the results of the New Hampshire primary are in. A key win for Bernie Sanders. It was a dreadful night for uh, Joe Biden. While Sanders is so far at least winning the race for Democrat supporters, can he convert that into the wider political appeal that he would need to defeat Donald Trump in November? Uh, Carol, normally you label someone a socialist in American politics, and it's fatal. And you assume that if Sanders does get the nomination, that is all you're going to hear from Donald Trump. Absolutely. And I think socialism, socialist, does have different connotations in the United States. It's still something where Donald Trump can successfully whip up certainly a part of the American electorate against him. I think what's interesting here is that, yes, last night was a good night for Bernie Sanders, but he was only a fraction ahead of Pete Buttigieg. And uh, we've seen uh, Amy... Klobuchar also showing very strongly there's quite a long way to go in this race. Bernie Sanders is in many ways the Jeremy Corbyn of American politics. He's got this very powerful, loyal fan base, uh, significant grassroots support, activists who'll go out there and campaign for him. But he's a very divisive figure. He's divisive even within the Democratic Party. And as I think you suggested there, there are many even within the Democratic movement who think that he is just too left-wing, too socialist, too radical to win over the numbers of votes, the centre ground, to win votes back from Donald Trump. I mean, Vincent, there was I heard some, some voters being interviewed yesterday, who's, uh, Democrats, who said, look, if it's, if it's Bernie, we're not going to win. We might as well not even have the election because Trump's going Trump's to win that election. Is, is there that sense, and I suppose there is a parallel here to something we'll discuss a little later in the Labour Party in the UK, that Sanders does very well with activists. He does very well with committed, diehard Democrats. We're going to vote Democrat anyway. But it's that question of whether he can win over those voters in the middle, the ones who voted for Obama, but then voted for Trump. 
I'd say two things on this. The first is, yeah, there's an obvious parallel with Jeremy Corbyn here, but there's an obvious parallel with Donald Trump, someone who wasn't a Republican, came in as the fringe candidate, managed to get a strong movement behind him that really supported him and then took over the party. And we're seeing the same thing with Bernie Sanders in that he has this movement that he carried forward from the last election. He never really suspended parts of his campaign. They kept going through the last couple of years. And now he is, you know, he's still registered for the next senatorial race as an independent not even as a Democrat. And so he's come in, he's re-registered as a Democrat to run. He is running away with it in these first two states. And for the other candidates, you know, Joe Biden is basically what uh, Bush was last time around. You know, Jeb Bush even brought his, you know, his brother, former two-time president, his dad on board the campaign and still couldn't make a breakthrough. So we're seeing that same thing with Joe Biden. We'll see whether he, you know, he's going to mention Obama even more in the build-up to South Carolina. But really now he is pretty much out of this. And if the Democrats Democrats want to get a moderate candidate. Well, you've got Klobuchar, you've got Warren, you've got Pete. They and, and Bloomberg as well, of course, let's not forget. They now need to pick one of them and the others need to fall away. Otherwise, they're going to be so split that Bernie Sanders is going to run away with this. And the second thing I've got to say is there is an ugly side to the Sanders campaign as well. We saw it again last night. Cynthia Nixon, the actress from Sex and the City who tried to become New York uh, governor recently and is now a Bernie supporter, she had to shut down a crowd who when Hillary Clinton's name was mentioned. And we're seeing there is this kind of vindictive side in Bernie's campaign, the Bernie bros, who are turning off mainstream Democrats. So it remains to be seen if Bernie can bring a party together because there are people unhappy with his conduct at the last election. And Carol Vincent mentioned some of the sort of people who are seen as the middle ground candidates, the Amy Klobuchar, who did very well yesterday. Pete Buttigieg, who's done well in, in both. The people around him seem to be trying to frame him now as 2020's version of Obama, as sort of the outsider that no one had heard of who's going to storm through the race. But, I mean, is he, is he, a, is he an Obama? A, a Buttigieg you're talking mm. about now. Uh, well, look, he has clearly got charisma. He's young, um, but he lacks experience. Um, the, I think the, it's very difficult to see how he could win over those Sanders supporters, just as it's very difficult indeed to see how Bernie Sanders can win over um, that, those lar- that larger number of moderates. I think what's interesting, if you look at um, what happened last night, um, Sanders was the victor. There were about a third of the votes went to uh, Sanders and to Elizabeth Warren on the more radical wing of the party. Uh, More than half went to the others who are all more or less centrist. But uh, as Vincent was pointing out, uh, they've got to make up their minds because if that more moderate vote is split between several different candidates, um, then there is that strong possibility that Sanders come through the middle. I think we do have to watch out for Michael Bloomberg, who has um, fought this rather unorthodox campaign of skipping out on all these primaries, but is spending, he has spent since the beginning of the year, more than $300 million on advertising, uh, an advertising campaign that's getting through to much larger numbers than these political events, which perhaps only capture a small amount of the electorate. Now, He's a bit of an unknown quantity, um, but he will certainly feel, looking at the fact that there's no other really clear front runner at the moment, that he still has to be in there with a chance. Um, obviously, we will learn more when we get to Super Tuesday uh, at the beginning of, of March. That may well be the death knell for Joe Biden if he's not able to, to, to get anywhere. But we talked about parallels between British and American politics here. 
And in the general election in the UK back in December, you bumped into people and said, look, the choice I've been given is a hard right conservative government or a hard left Labour government. And a lot of voters actually don't feel they sit in the middle. In the end, though, the voters did break left and right pretty much consistently. If you go through that in America, if it's Sanders Trump, then what happens to those middle ground American voters? Is There isn't no third party candidate has ever done anything other than screw up the mathematics of the Electoral College. So presumably they, they are just going to have to pick a side. Yeah, people are worried about that. You know, earlier in the campaign, people were worried about Tulsi Gabbard splitting the Democrat vote. But I think just to go back on one part of your question, I, we can't rule Joe Biden out on one thing, is that he polls extraordinarily high with black voters and has 99% name recognition in America. When we get to the next one, which is South Carolina, a very, uh, you know, African-American state, he might surge ahead there. It was interesting that he actually left New Hampshire last night before the result and he had a rally in South Carolina and then with Super Tuesday, much more diverse states. So he could pull stuff back uh, because, you know, Pete Boudier does very poorly with black voters. Amy Klobuchar has also got issues as a time as a lawyer in in terms of criminal uh, issues that she prosecuted. Um, and so, you know, it's not absolutely sewn up yet. But uh, yeah, it is for a lot of people, you know, Bernie and Democrats will have the same problem that Republicans had with Trump. Is it do you just hold your nose and vote for him? Can Bernie put through a message of we have to get Trump out, which is what Joe Biden has been trying to do, saying you might not think I've got all these, you know, snazzy new policies, but I'm just to take back the soul of America, get Trump out. And what and what the camp has to do behind Bernie is to really say, you know, to you have to hold your nose and vote for him just to get Trump out. But his policies, and particularly an attack I heard last night that I hadn't heard before with Bernie is, you know, he took his honeymoon in the USSR before the Iron Curtain fell. Now, in America, that is going to play so bad. And I think we're going to hear a lot more about that in the next couple of weeks. Vincent McAvinney and Carol Walker. And we'll be back in just a moment. First, though, here's Monocle's Yelling Goffin with some of the day's other top stories. Thanks, Paul. The left-wing senator Bernie Sanders has won the New Hampshire Democratic primary. Centrist Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar also performed well. But it was a bad night for the former vice president Joe Biden, who finished in fifth place. Sanders declared his victory the beginning of the end for Donald Trump. Hundreds of employees at Singapore's biggest bank, DBS, have been evacuated after a person working there fell ill with coronavirus. Singapore has one of the highest rates of the virus outside China, and DBS said that the decision to send its employees home was a precautionary measure. And more than half of Malta's traffic police officers have been arrested over accusations they fraudulently claimed for overtime. The 30 suspects are being questioned by the Economic Crimes Unit over claims that they filed for hundreds of hours of work that was not carried out. Back to you, Paul. Yelling, thank you. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne, here with Vincent McAvinney and Carol Walker. Well, next we turn to UK politics and the lengthy battle to be the next leader of Britain's Labour Party, so badly beaten in December's general election. By the end of this week, we'll know which of the candidates have made the ballot, but we won't know the identity of Labour's next leader until the beginning of April. Uh, Carol, the, the race has faded a bit from public view, but it's actually got pretty nasty with the front-runner, Sakir Starmer, being accused of hacking into the party's membership database. 
Yeah, you're right that this has really sunk from public view while the government presses ahead announcing high-speed rail lines, tougher sentences for criminals, uh, Boris Johnson about to reshuffle his government. Um, But there's a really tightly fought contest going on as to who is going to lead the opposition party. At the moment, Sakia Starmer, who is seen as a more moderate uh, candidate, is well out in front. He faced allegations at the weekend from the camp around Rebecca Long-Bailey, who was seen as more on the radical wing of the party, the natural successor to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, allegations from her camp that Sakir's camp had been hacking into the Labour Party database. They responded by saying, well, look, we were just trying to investigate what appeared to be some evidence that Rebecca Long-Bailey's uh, team were doing exactly that. Um, Looking a bit nasty, looking a bit scrappy, not the sort of thing that's going to engage the wider voters. And I think it is a sign of quite how hard fought this is going to be. I think if you look beyond that, um, what is fascinating is that the size of the lead that so far Sakir Starmer has. He is his way out in front with uh, more than 300 local parties. Rebecca Long-Bailey, who's in second place, has only got 138 local parties behind her. It is a very long and a complex process. But when you look at that lead and the sort of support he's getting, not least from the local constituency party of Jeremy Corbyn himself, who've backed Sakia Starmer, not something that people would have expected. And if you look at other indicators, like, for example, the party has just selected to fight one of the big mayoralty contests in the Midlands, Liam Byrne, who was a a, a minister in Tony Blair's time and seen as very much on that Blairite wing of the party. The question here is whether that represents a significant shift within the Labour Party overall. We know that a lot of Labour Party members have rejoined, that there are fresh members that have joined. We don't know what their views are, whether they're on the left or the right of the party. Um, Sakir Starmer has so far been directing a huge amount of time to saying, oh, look, I'm not ditching all of uh, Jeremy Corbyn's policies. Um, But it would be fascinating to see whether he does emerge as the next Labour leader and whether indeed that represents a a, a real significant shift in the party away from the Corbynista movement, which has dominated in recent years. Vincent, it is Keir Starmer's extraordinary lead that is the real surprise. I think we'd assumed... What we assume we know about the Labour Party membership, oh, they'll row in behind Rebecca Long-Bailey. She's seen as the heir to Jeremy Corbyn. A lot of talk immediately after the election. I mean, people saying, well, if you look at it in a certain way, we won because we won the argument. We shifted the debate and all this sort of, I mean, well, nonsense. Um, you would have assumed that they, they were going to row in behind the chosen candidate. But is it possible that those hardline pro-Corbyn Labour activists have decided that they've had enough of losing? Well, I think part of it might be that some of them are, you know, sick of losing. But I think it's because there was a lot of infighting at the end within that camp itself. You know, Jeremy Corbyn's office descended into toxicity with allegations of bullying and people leaving that office uh, and in the Labour Party HQ as well, real structural problems there. And I think it's it's interesting because, you know, this accusation of dirty tricks has been levelled now. And I think it's actually a sign of panic from Rebecca Long-Bailey's um, team uh, because for you know it does seem as though a lot of when you went to Jeremy Corbyn events there was a kind of frenetic energy to them uh, but there were lots of people there who were kind of had paid this smaller associate member fee uh, that they did to, to vote for Jeremy Corbyn back in 2015 I think 
even if you kind of track the the progress of Jeremy Corbyn online in the election, he wasn't getting the kind of traction that he did in the previous election in 2017. And so it seems like a lot of the younger voters became a bit disenchanted with him and have kind of fallen away. And I think the, the message has got through that after a decade, you know, of being in opposition and not having won an election since 2005, I think a lot of people are simply saying, you know, we've got to now get it back into the Labour Party and, and vote him through. But I think we've got two months to go. And the problem that he has Sir Keir Starmer, which, you know, when Neil Kinnock took over from Michael Foote in the 1980s, the sort of uh, the sort of Michael Foote tribe had never got hold of the party structure. They hadn't got hold of the head office. They hadn't got hold of the NEC. What Jeremy Corbyn managed to do after being elected a second time as Labour leader is really kind of gut the Labour HQ of of the kind of more kind of moderate branch of the party. He filled it with his own people. He's got his own people on the NEC. We'll see just kind of how problematic that can be for Sakir in the time going forward between now and then if they do decide to go on this attack, that left-wing camp of him possibly having accessed this database wrongly. Let's stay with UK politics but uh, concentrate on London. If you live in London, how do you feel about hosting the man who may be the city's next mayor as a house guest? Rory Stewart, the former Conservative MP who is running as an independent, is offering to stay on London as sofas because he would like to learn more about the city. Um, Carol, this is someone who, in, in a past career, walked 6,000 miles across Afghanistan and stayed with local people in, in tents to learn more about the country. So... This is not the first time he's suggested something unorthodox like this. It does feel a little bit like a publicity stunt for somebody who is currently trailing um, the more prominent candidates. Look, Rory Stewart is a real maverick. He uh, enlivened the last Conservative leadership contest, although he didn't come anywhere near actually winning it. And I fear that's going to be the case this time around. He is a fascinating and a very different character. And I think, frankly, that we we need characters like Rory Stewart in, a, in an era that we've got too many machine party politicians. Yes, he's somebody who walked thousands of miles across Af- Afghanistan. He, he ran a province in Afghanistan at one stage. Uh, I, I've met him on many ca- occasions and he's a very um, entertaining and an interesting character. Um, he's launched this wonderful video where he's saying, yep, come kip with me and saying that he wants to go and sleep on the sofas of anyone who can have him, who will have him in order to try to get to understand what makes Londoners tick. And uh, he's promising that he'll bring his own sleeping bag and a box of chocolate. So it'll be interesting to see how many people uh, take up his plea. Um, yeah, he's trailing. Look, at the moment, uh, the current in incumbent uh, Mayor Khan has got uh, a solid lead of uh, around 45% and London is seen uh, classically as a Labour city, although, of course, Boris Johnson was London mayor for quite some time. Uh, I think Rory Stewart is going to struggle to actually make inroads in terms of winning this contest. But I think it is refreshing to have a senior politician who is prepared to get down amongst the people who are going to be voting for him to travel around. He does walk miles uh, around London, uh, filming it all on his uh, on his mobile phone, and um, you know, l- let's have a bit more of the, let's have a bit more of that, and and less of the um, the Michael Bloomberg spending three hundred million dollars on TV campaigns. But does that mean, Carol, that you would host him on your sofa? 
Oh, he's a fascinating character. I would absolutely have him on my sofa and give him dinner and we'd have a very, very uh, interesting chat. Um, whether or not um, I would vote for him, that I'll, I'll keep between myself and uh, and the ballot box. But yeah, yeah, Rory, if you're listening, you're you're very welcome to come and uh, kip on my on my sofa. We might even be able to find something a bit more comfortable for you to sleep on. Too. Yeah, you're going to get three invites by the end of this conversation, maybe. Vincent, are you are you happy to have Rory yeah. around? I mean, of course, it, the video is quirky. He's a very quirky politician. You know, he in his constituency when he was an MP in the north on the borders, he was known for just walking around the constituency. One of the biggest constituencies in the country and just dropping in on constituents and wanting to meet to them uh, meet them and talk to them and I think if you did invite him over I mean it does feel a bit like a premise of a BBC three reality show um, have the mayor to stay but um you know you'd have plenty to talk to him he was uh, you know the private tutor to Prince Harry and Prince William he was supposedly allegedly a spy at one point as well working Definitely. for MI6 I mean yeah <laughs> worst kept secret uh, there uh, and you know his time in government he finished in government he was a um, minister for justice I think was his final job I think it maybe to go to Difford I mean plenty to talk to him about you know what Theresa May was like trying to run a government so he would be a fascinating house guest um, and yeah he says he'll bring his own sleeping bag and a box of chocolates with him so uh, you know why not the other thing that, that's interesting about this is is Carol mentioned that you know that the, the candidates of the two main parties are still quite dominant in the polls. But since the post of Mayor of London was created 20 years ago, we've had a Conservative who won by basically pretending not to be a Conservative. We've had a Labour mayor who ran as an independent because the Labour Party wouldn't have him. So here is a job where actually your personality can be more important than your party affiliation. Yeah, I think the problem with Rory Stewart, though, is there's going to be a lot of confusion from voters around him. And I think this was a problem that he had in the in the Conservative leadership campaign, because really he doesn't at times come across like a Conservative. Like he's a very centrist figure in his policies. He's very smart. He's very articulate. But he's just kind of, you know, he's not a kind of pro-business guy. He's not kind of got the credentials of that. He's he's quite mysterious. I just think for a city like London, you want to know that he can competently run TfL, you know, one of the biggest transport networks in the world that gets millions of people to and from work every day. You want to know that he can kind of tackle, you know, the terrorism incidents, the kind of things that you have to respond to. And I think he just seems like too aloof a character. So as interesting as he is, trying to imagine him sitting down at a desk every day, running a city like London, is a little bit tricky. Vincent McAvinney and Carol Walker, thank you both very much. In a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about what can't and perhaps shouldn't be trademarked. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne. Finally today, is there a limit to what can be trademarked? can be a difficult question, but as Monocle's fashion editor Jamie Waters explains, some brands might be taking their trademarks a bit too far. Can a small plastic Ziploc bag, the sort that you fill with cosmetics while queuing for airport security, be trademarked? In an ongoing case that has received considerable internet scrutiny, the New York makeup brand Glossier is arguing that you can. It's applying to the United States Patent and Trademark Office, the USPTO, to prevent anyone copying its signature candy pink bubble-wrapped Ziploc bags. Instinctively, and setting the legal arguments aside for a moment, the brand has got a point. For the relevant millennial demographic, this particular shade of plastic pouch has become a status symbol that's inextricably linked with this juggernaut brand, which was recently valued at $1.3 billion. 
This example feeds into a proliferation of trademark cases in fashion and other consumer sectors, such as alcohol. A recent report by the research firm CompuMark revealed that globally there have never been so many trademark applications or infringements. It's perhaps testament to the fact that in an era in which social media facilitates easy cross-pollination and copying of ideas, it's ever more difficult to create something unique. Just think of how bizarre new brand names have become. So when you do come up with something special, you want to hold on to it. Call out culture, shaming other brands for copying your products, has become rife, especially on Instagram. At times, it can verge on pettiness. But Glossier has something genuinely distinctive with its packaging and without having to slap a big logo on it, no less. Surely that's worth fighting for. And that was Monocle's fashion editor, Jamie Waters. Uh, that ends Monocle's House View, produced by Tom Hall, our studio managers are Steph Chung and Christy Evans. At 2000 UK time, there's a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. And Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 here in London. From me, Paul Osborne, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>